Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plushcare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This 30-minute podcast features a new author interviewed by me every single day, 365 days a year for about 30 minutes. I am also the publisher for Zibby Books, which publishes 12 books a year in fiction and memoir. Our books are already out now. You can check it out on zibbybooks.com. And we have a magazine called Zibby Mag, where we have lots of wonderful essays and lifestyle features. That's at zibbymag.com. We have classes at zibbyclasses.com. And I recently opened a bookstore in LA called Zibby's Bookshop at 1113 Montana Avenue at 11th Street in Santa Monica. I hope that you are able to enjoy some of our other offerings. But this here podcast is the basis of all of it and started in 2018. And no matter what I do, this is basically my favorite thing. Enjoy. Jane Delury is the author of Hedge, a novel. I'm saying it in a kooky way like that, because this is one of the books that we are publishing from Zibby Books, and I am so proud that I have my name attached to this book in any way, shape, or form, because it is so good. It's getting so much press. It has just a really amazing life trajectory ahead of it, and I am obsessed with the cover, and I'm just, and just excited in general. So anyway, here's Jane's bio. I hope you love the book and come to Zibby's Virtual Book Club or any of the Zibby's Book Club chapters so you can talk about it since it's one of the book club picks. Jane Delury is the author of The Balcony, which won the Sue Kaufman Prize for First Fiction from the American Academy of Arts and Letters. 
Her short stories have appeared in Granta, the Sewanee Review, the Southern Review, the Yale Review, Narrative, and other publications. Her awards include a Penn slash O. Henry Prize, a Pushcart Special Mention, and grants from the Maryland State Arts Council. Her essays have appeared in Real Simple, Oprah.com, LitHub, and Poets and Writers. A professor at the University of Baltimore, she teaches in the MFA in Creative Writing and Publishing Arts and directs the BA in English, originally from Sacramento, California. She now lives in Baltimore with her family. Welcome, Jane. Thanks so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. I am so happy to be here. I have my matching copy over here. I mean, I'm so obsessed with how this hardcover turned out. I was like, I oh my gosh, I was just like stroking it. So I know I said this in the bio that it was pre-recorded, but um, you know, this is one of the Zibby Books titles. And we got to see this from the first version of the manuscript all the way to completion. And in this bound cover, it is so cool to watch a book go through this whole process. It's just, it does not get old. <laughs> yeah. I, it, nor for me. It was just so, um, it's just amazing. It's amazing it, because it's so much work, you know, it's so many years of work and thought and, and here it is. Here it is. Oh my gosh. Okay. Jane, can you please tell listeners what your book is about? Sure. Hedge is about a struggle. I think many of us have between pursuing our individual passions and taking care of the people we love. Uh, it's about a garden historian who uh, restores ancient gardens back to life. And when the book opens, she's in a really unhappy marriage and she and her husband have separated and she has moved from the Bay Area to the Hudson Valley for the summer to restore a garden at Montgomery Place, a 19th century estate. And she's just, she's so happy. She's finding her work again. She's finding freedom again. And she is developing a deep friendship that starts to turn romantic with an archeologist who is also working at the site. But her daughter, her 13-year-old daughter is struggling. Maud realizes this, but she has some deeper issues and secrets of her own that start to emerge over the course of that summer and eventually really blow up. And two years later, Maud is back in the Bay Area trying to reconcile what happened over the course of that summer, back in her marriage, trying to make things work for her daughter. But some things don't go away and they don't for Maud. And so she ultimately has to figure it all out all over again back home. Wow. So this has gone through lots of changes over time. Yes. Tell me how this whole project started. Like where, and actually maybe back up and explain how you got into writing the balcony. Like, let's go back a bit and how this, how did you start being a writer? All of it. Let's do the archaeology. Let's do the archaeology. Yes, yeah. let's do it. So, so I w- I majored in literature in college at UC Santa Cruz. I'm originally from California. That's the whole Bay Area, the love of the Bay Area. I was born in San Francisco. I left for France for my year abroad where I fell in love with the man who ended up becoming uh, my husband and the father of my first two kids. So I moved back to France and did a graduate degree in literature as well. And while I was there... I really missed, I missed the English language. I was speaking French all the time. And I think that's what got me to write my first short story was I I felt this strange distance and almost alienation when I went back to California. I was sort of kind of becoming French, but of course I wasn't French. And so I think those first stories were about reconnecting to the language and my culture and figuring out who I was in this new place vis-a-vis who I had been for the first 23, four years of my life. Um, And so I started writing these stories. I joined a writer's group. I sent them to the U.S. This was back in the olden days when you mailed everything. (laughs) 
used to joke in my writing group that we had an edge because we had these beautiful French stamps on our envelopes and maybe editors would give us extra attention. I don't think that actually worked. (laughs) And so from France, I lived there for almost five years. And then I applied to graduate school in Baltimore uh, at the writing seminars at Johns Hopkins. And so that brought me to Baltimore where I have been writing and teaching ever since, teaching fiction. So my first sort of job out of Hopkins was as an adjunct at the public university, University of Baltimore. And I've just kind of, I've been there for almost 20 years teaching graduate and undergraduate fiction. So I just, yeah, I just live and breathe fiction all the time. And so those stories that I started writing in France that were about the U.S., things changed when I moved to the U.S. I started writing about my life in France and people I had known there, especially my now ex-husband's family. And so The Balcony, which was my first book, was a novel in stories where I took about five or six of the stories that I'd been writing uh, that were based on this area of France that my ex-husband's grandparents lived in. And I created one property with two houses, a manor house and a servant's cottage. And I told the story of the people who lived in those two houses over the course of the 20th century. So each chapter is a standalone story, but taken together, they tell a bigger story as a novel. So that was my first book. And then I uh, just kept, you know, I was still writing stories, but the hedge kind of erupted. You know, when we look back at our lives doing the archaeology, we can see faces. I'm sure you relate to this or eras. And so Hedge really came out of another era of my life, which was I got divorced. I had a seven-year-old and a 13-year-old. I, you know, I basically, I wasn't married at 21, but I was in a committed forever relationship at 21. So I was very much new to being on my own and living on my own. And despite a lot of support, you know, from friends and family. I had to buy a house. I had to figure out how to be in my own financially. It was a whole new world that I think I didn't realize how difficult, (laughs) which sounds a little nutty looking back, but I thought it would, we were all going to be okay. And I was going to make it okay. And I knew it was my responsibility to make it okay for my girls, but it was hard. And those were hard years of transition. And I wrote the first draft of Hedge in my garden the first summer where I bought this house, which I loved, but I couldn't afford to fix anything. And there were a lot of things that needed fixing. And I wanted it to be beautiful for my girls. And and the one thing I could do was I can make the garden beautiful, even though I wasn't a very good gardener. Because plants are actually not as expensive as remodeling a kitchen. (laughs) So I, I missed the girls a lot when they were with their dad. And I just found this refuge in my garden and in this manuscript of the story of a mother who, much like me, uh, was facing this conundrum and the struggle of pursuing her own happiness, but not wanting it to be at the expense of her children's happiness. In your own life, was there a deep friendship that brewed? Well, the deep friendship that brewed actually is at Trader Joe's right now. Um, (laughs) So I, after the whole, you know, and I really am lucky in having an ex who is a great father and was a great co-parent. So everything could have been a million times worse, of course. But I sort of declared to a writer friend about two months after I moved out, I am never going to be in a relationship again. Like I saw myself, I was going to be on my own for the rest of my life. I was going to get my women friends. We were going to travel together. It was all going to be great. And so I don't know if I should, oh, what the hell? I'm going to tell you. I said with Laura Vandenberg, who's a wonderful writer. And I said to her, we were driving down Charles Street in Baltimore. I said, I would just love to make out with someone on a bench at AWP Seattle, which is this writer's conference. (laughs) 
And Laura said, I know the perfect person for that. And reader, I married him. So that was, <laughs> that was my first date. Don lived in Philadelphia where he directed a creative writing program. And he he's a writer and it has six books. And we started this epistolary correspondence. He didn't know what he was getting into. I mean... <laughs> older than I am and had never lived with anyone. And here he had this like neophyte who was like, let's email 95 times a day and talk on the phone every night. And so anyway, that's a whole other novel. But um, yes, it all worked out. It all worked out really well. But I realized recently about Hedge that that was also a lot of work for all of us, for my daughters, for Dawn, for me to create this new unit. First, there was creating this unit with my two girls, this, the three of us. And then eventually, after many years, about five years, Dawn moved in with us. And so that was a whole other kind of reinvention. And so I think that's actually in the book, too, those years of, you know, making this new this new family. Wow. That's so funny. My deep friendship is a Trader Joe's. That's one of my favorite lines from a podcast, I think. <laughs> Amazing. Was it always called Hedge? You know, it was called Hedge from the beginning. But the original draft of this book, which was very different, took place at Monticello, which is kind of a seat of landscape history and garden restoration in the United States. And there aren't that many of them. Most of this is in England. Um, and Maude actually trains in England and lives in England for years before she moves back to the Bay Area. So the original draft was at Monticello. I ended up moving it because... Thomas Jefferson cast too long of a shadow. And the original draft of the book was much more about wrestling with these problems in restoring a place like Monticello, where, by the way, Thomas Jefferson, you know, he contributed, but he wasn't out there doing all of the actual work. That was, you know, the enslaved people who lived on the mountain. Anyway, so I spent a lot of time at Monticello learning about, you know, the gardens, the restoration of the gardens, um, the lives of, you know, the people who lived on the mountain, who worked in the garden, the gardeners. But ultimately, the, the book is a novel with a pretty, I think, dramatic plot about a mother and daughters. It's not about, you know, the history of race in America. And it's, that's not a topic that can be le treated lightly. So when I decided that I needed to kind of cut those 95 pages out of the book, I needed a new setting and I brought the hedge with me. So that hedge... <laughs> It's actually wasn't Monticello, but I, when I moved the book to the Hudson Valley into Montgomery place, I actually said to Amy Perella, who is the head of grounds and gardens at Bard and was hugely helpful in this relocation. I said, we walked around the grounds of the estate and I said, okay, I just, I need a hedge. I can't let go of the hedge. It's important to me. It's the title. And so we walked around. She was like, well, let's see, where could you have a hedge? You could have one right over there. So we actually found the spot where this hedge could exist, uh, which was just a really fun day with her, like walking around. I basically just told her the novel. I was like, and then I need a romantic scene, you know, by a body of water. And she was like, oh, you know, the swimming lake. And so, <laughs> so it all just translated really well. And yeah, and it always was the title and it was always important that it be like, you know, sometimes you attach to something in the drafting, everything changed, but the title didn't change. That's so funny. How did you sort of reconcile your teaching brain with your writing output? Like, how did you take your own advice, so to speak? And like, what were you aware of yourself doing that you teach other people or maybe teach people not to do? Well, first of all, I would say almost everything. I mean, in drafting, I feel like, you know, I spend so much time critiquing manuscripts, talking about these issues. But the truth is when you sit down to write, obviously, 
I, I get Lele, right? I do get that right now. Um, <laughs> what else? I don't start stories with an alarm clock going off unless I'm doing it ironically. Like there's some things, yes, I have learned not to do. But, you know, issues of pacing. Wait, why are we not starting chapters with an alarm clock? Oh, I don't know. That's just one of those sort of teaching cliche rules is, you know, everybody, most everybody wakes up with an alarm clock. So unless, you know, the alarm clock is like, you know, set off by a dinosaur, it's not that interesting to start your story that way. It's just one of those like teaching workshop kind of cliches. But yeah, so all of these deeper issues of how the heck do you do this all everything I know kind of goes out the window when I sit down and and draft in a good way, right? Like when you're doing that first draft, you're like, oh, this everything's so wonderful and this is so fabulous, escaping to this wonderful world. But then when you actually have the draft and you look at it and you start giving it to people, then you see like all these things that you need to address. So I had, I mean, I but I'm a really avid reviser. I'm not afraid of revision. I love revision. I mean, I don't always love it. Sometimes it's painful and terrifying, but you know, I really went at the book, but I think in terms of like teaching, my teaching brain and my writing brain, I try to set aside the critical brain when I'm drafting, which is a lot easier in the summer. I mean, I will be frank, like working on novels during the school year is hard. I write a, I write a lot of stories, but for me with a novel, you really, I need to just kind of go with it and live in that parallel world. And because in teaching that critical brain is so turned on all the time, it's a lot harder to shut it up for my own work. So, so that's why summers are so important for me for longer projects. Interesting. So what are you going to work on this summer? <laughs> well, I started a something that I'm not calling a novel, but I did start a something because I went to Ireland last summer with my mother and my daughters. And I was very close to my grandmother who was from County Mayo. She was a very important figure in my life. And we went to Dublin and we we did one of those heritage investigation sessions. And all of these documents, the historian put up all these documents that contradicted what we knew of my grandmother's childhood growing up at the turn of the century in Mayo. It was just like things were off and wrong. And it was, it was just a very interesting moment. You know, again, I'm so interested in the stories people believe about themselves and believe about the other people they love. And this was an example of that, you know, like my grandmother who we thought had grown up with her mother and eight kids, it turned out actually was living with an aunt 30 miles away. And and my mother didn't know about this. And so all of these interesting questions about her and my family history came up. So anyway, I'm working on a something about someone who discovers something <laughs> similar thinking, you know, and then I'm kind of going into the back in time, you know, to kind of figure out sort of like being a a time detective, but not literally, I don't write sci-fi. So there's no actual time travel or fantasy. Anyway, it's a big mess right now, but it's great. <laughs> no one's looked at it and I'm having fun with it. You know what I mean? That's awesome. Yeah. And it's not even the summer right now. So you're ahead of yourself. It's true. You're right. You're right. <laughs> you can have the summer to really dive deep. That's really yes. exciting. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
it. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. So even though The Balcony came out, it was short stories. And now at this point, you're a debut novelist, really. I mean, how does that feel? It feels great. I mean, The Balcony was funny that way because it really isn't. I mean, it works as a novel, but this is an actual novel. Like, this is a novel. Like So yeah, so for me, even though probably for the rest of the world, this is not my debut novel, you and I both know, <laughs> and maybe a couple other people, um, it, it really is. And it feels, it feels great. I mean, it does feel like I ventured into a different form because again, I really love short stories and I'm really, I'm comfortable. I mean, not that I don't write duds and feel like I don't know what I'm doing and question myself constantly because that's just always there. But, but the novel form is quite different. I mean, I will say Hedge is a very compact novel, right? With one point of view Mm -hmm. and a pretty clear, you know, through line chronology. So one might say (laughs) that it's a very long short story, which maybe helped me write it. You know, it's not a 700 page tome with 15 point points of view. Um, But who knows? Maybe that will be next. Who knows? I guess we'll just find out after the summer. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Wow. So tell me more about your daughters and how they reacted to this book, especially in light of all that your family had gone through. Yeah. So um, my daughters, first of all, are wonderful. And yeah, they're both sort of coming into, well, one of them really is in adulthood and the other one's almost there. So this is an interesting time of life for me. I started Hedge when they were younger. Margo, my eldest, was still at home. She's now, has, she's in her junior year of college. Rose is in her junior year of high school. She said to me yesterday, you timed this really well. You're not going to have to pay, you know, for both of us for college at the same time. She's like, did you think about that when you had us? I was like, no, not really. But yeah, so. Margot has read the book. Uh, Rose hasn't read it yet. They, I don't know. I mean, I I think this might be true for many writers. Like my kids, like I'm mom, I'm me. They are so supportive of my writing. They're wonderful, but they kind of don't. It's almost like someone else wrote that in a funny way. I mean, I definitely get grief, a little bit of grief from my eldest about, you know, the eldest daughter who is really not like her at all. (laughs) And they recognize things. So even though Maude is quite different from me and the daughters are quite different from my daughters, I mean, they recognize, you can't help it, like stuff slips in. So for example, Maude likes to tell stories on her daughter's back 
And I used to do that all the time, you know, with Margo, like I'd act out the whole story on her back. And so I wasn't even consciously thinking about that when I read the book, but she actually was like, stories on the back, like, you know, you always do with me. I was like, oh, right. That's, that's where that came from. So they recognize things. They don't like when I write sex scenes. That's definitely <laughs> like, in fact, that my youngest daughter, I don't think she'd mind my saying she like picked open one of my husband's books and like there was a description of a body part on page four or something. And like, that was it for his, of. she was like, I never, so she hasn't read any stuff, but yeah, I think they always take everything I write with a grain of salt. I mean, they recognize the reality, but I'm also careful. Like I'm careful in all of my fiction to, to change things up so that nobody can be fully recognized. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny. My son who's eight is doing a mystery unit at school. Oh, okay. And he was like, is Wednesday's at one a mystery? And I was like, kind of, I mean, um, a little, there is something mysterious. And he was like, well, can I bring it in to read it at school? He's like, but if there's anything like any curse words or anything inappropriate, I'm going to get expelled. So you you better make sure there's, I was like, first of all, you're not going to get expelled. Oh, I love that. So anyway, I, on the car, on the car ride to school this morning, I was reading through it and I was like, well, they do like describe someone's boobs here. And he was like, nope, forget it. Leave it at home. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like leaping through it. You just need yeah. to go through with the black, you know, like the CIA with like yeah. the Sharpie. Yeah, exactly. I know. I'm like, it does say breasts. And he's like, forget it. I can't do it. <laughs> I know. It's so awkward. This whole like kid parent sex through writing. I mean, it's bizarre, right? Because kids would never want to have it. I, well, anyway, I don't know. It's just such a it's true. I mean, and I don't, you know, I don't write super steamy sex. Like I'm right. not yeah. good at it. And, uh, you know, I, I don't. You're not I'm good just... at writing about it. Yeah. Like there's a lot of, I do like the net. Oh, right. Thank you, Zidane. Not just week. I like the sort of 1950s, like, you know, the train going to the tunnel and the ship, go, you know, going out into the ocean. Like, you know, I think there's, a, there, well, I don't want to give anything away, but I think I, I have a very strategic chapter break. Yes. Which I'm sure my daughters appreciate. <laughs> oh my gosh. And how is it being married to someone else who has the same craft? Like, what is that like? It's really great. I mean, I can see how it could be not great, but for us, it works well. I mean, Don's my first reader and I'm his first reader. I actually gave him a story on Saturday. I was like, okay, I need to, you know, start showing stuff. So, you know, he was, and he was so funny. He was like, oh, thank God I liked it afterwards. Because, <laughs> you know, we do, I mean, we react. We're very honest with each other and we have our reactions and, but we don't take it out on each other. We just kind of mope a little privately. And then we come back and are like, okay, let's talk about it now. Let's talk about the edits. Yeah. And you know, he's been through the publishing process for so many years and that's really great. Like he just gives me so much sort of, I don't know, perspective, but I think any good partner, I think you have one of these two, like a good partner who just like brings you back to yourself. I think whatever he did for a profession, like he would do that, just kind of help me like come down and put things in perspective. And, but yeah, it has, it's worked. There's, it's been all good. That's been all really, really good having a partner who's also a writer. And his, he was an editor for 20 years too. So I get a lot of free editing. <laughs> I actually told him yesterday, because you know, with Hedge, like there's, you know, there's the book tour coming up and, and there's just so much going on. And I'm also trying to keep writing. So I am working on stories and on this longer thing. But yesterday I said to him, I think it was after he read the story, I said, do you want me to put you on retainer? 
It's like, do, should I like, you know, because <laughs> I'm always asking him, there's something weird with my website or, you know, can you proof this letter or whatever? But yeah, he's really, he's a good partner that way. <laughs> That's awesome. I feel like he and Kyle could trade notes on stepchildren as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I know that's been yeah. a transition for, I mean, Kyle's so great with the kids, but it's, you know, it's its unique role. And It is. It is. And you have to kind of, I think every unit has to kind of reinvent it, right? And and um, my kids call him step dude. That was the term. Oh, that's funny. Because I think what we said, I mean, they have a father and they're very close to their father and he's, he's, he's awesome, you know? And so I think that was just, I think my youngest coined that term early on. Cause that was like a comfortable, he's yep. step dude. And, like and he's figured out how to be step dude. You know, everybody has to figure it out. Yeah. Uh, have you kept the thread of French and French language and all of that in your life at all? Like, are you, do you go back often or? Yeah. So that was, a, that was a really painful aspect of the divorce that I wasn't expecting, um, was sort of losing that connection to this culture and this country. Um, and I had studied French. It was also a connection to my father who died when I was 16 because he was the one who really encouraged me to speak French. And so there was a whole history. We had family there anyway. So, and we spoke it, um, especially with my youngest, we spoke a lot of French when she was growing up. And then I kind of, I couldn't afford it. Honestly, I couldn't afford to go back. We used to go once or twice a year to France with the girls and stay with my husband's family and do our own thing. So I hadn't gone back for like six years, which again, had been an annual regular thing. So I went back last fall. I think you know this because we had a Zippy retreat and I changed my ticket. Yes, I remember very well. Because Margot was in Paris on her semester abroad, and uh, both of the girls, they're dual citizens, their French is amazing. I mean, their accents are like so much better than mine. And so I went back for the first time to see her. Rose and I went together. They'd been going with their dad pretty regularly, but I hadn't been back. And it was amazing. It was like, I mean, first of all, it was amazing to be with my daughter in this huge city where she's just so independent and, you know, navigating, you know, the metro and her French is, I mean, People thought she was French, her accent's so good. The minute I opened my mouth, they were like, oh, she has a clearly not French mother. So, but it was also amazing to rediscover that part of myself. It was like, it was strange. I told a friend of mine, it was like, there was still this 22 year old version of me, like sitting on a park bench in the Jardin de Tourie, you know, just like still there. So it was really great. And I want to go back again. I think this summer is going to be hard with all the book tour, but I'm already planning. And I want to go back with Don because he hasn't been to France in years. So, and Rose and I now speak it, we're speaking it again. So we've started speaking French at home more often, which is great. And Don just, you know, in his calm step dude way, like doesn't care. We're like, you're sure. He just pretends he understands what we're saying and says decor, which means okay. He just says decor. <laughs> we're like, we'll never talk about you. That will be a rule. So yeah, that's another aspect of my life that I want to start integrating again because I do miss it. And and Margo's going back this summer and I think she'll be she loved living in Paris. So um, I don't want her to move there. That's way too far. But I wouldn't mind if she spent, you know, periods of time there where I could go you know, visit and stay longer. So well, maybe you could somehow start writing short stories in French and then you'd have to do like a French tour. I don't know. Well, I will tell you that, yes, there is a bit, there is a, a bit of a French angle to, uh, to this new project I'm working on. I, I think it's good to set fiction, set your fiction in places you want to visit. That's, that's the only writing advice I have. 
Okay. Get to go there, you know? So like when I moved the balcony, I was like, where am I going to move it where I can drive? It's like, I love the Hudson Valley. It's so beautiful, you know? And so I got to go to the Hudson Valley like 10 times, you know, (laughs) it wasn't that many, but to do the research. And, and those are these retreats on my own with my book. And I think, you know, as women and mothers and busy people, we can't always get away by ourselves. So yeah, I think it's a good idea to choose locations you want to go to. Anyway, very smart. That's my tip. (laughs) That's a great tip. That's a really great tip. And you can write those tips off, by the way. Mm, on your t- write the trips off, then you're going to want to talk to all those bookstore owners in the area, right? Yeah, you're going to do a whole exactly. marketing thing because it's based there. So yeah, and they've been so great with supporting the book, you know, uh, Bard, and uh, I mean it. It is. It's that's been that's been terrific. That was a really good move. Nice move. Literally. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Jane, I'm so excited that Hedge is coming out. I'm so excited that Lee Newman already, you know, knew you so well and had so much respect for you and was so excited about this book when we started the whole company. And I've got to watch it. I've gotten to see it just like bloom, you know, like a a, a fast growing hedge. (laughs) Anyway, it's been really fun and you're awesome. And I'm very excited for what's to come. This was so great. Thanks, Zibby. All right. Thanks, Jane. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 